0: Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I am talking to Alex Turner. It's actually been a long time since Alex and I have spoken. Four years, in fact. He was on for episode 148, and we were talking about the theoretical mechanism of muscle memory, and I was talking about some of his research that he was conducting at the time, looking into the effect of anabolic steroids on the muscle gene expression, epigenetic markers, and the influence on the enhancement of muscle memory. That research has now been completed. Alex reached out and kindly shared that with me and now we're going to be diving into that. Along with Alex's research, there's also been quite a lot of research coming out that maybe has changed the landscape of how we understand muscle memory. So if you have heard of muscle memory, you think you understand it well, I think this podcast will give you a, a real further understanding of that about what we do know and maybe what we don't know. We also discussed some elements of uh, how steroid use here in the UK has really grown to large a large extent and how there isn't really any real health care or care for those individuals and how that might have downstream effects that are unwanted and also the effect of kind of if anabolics uh, and someone takes those and you get a muscle memory effect how long should that person have to wait before being able to compete or should they even be able to compete in a drug-free sport in the future some really interesting discussion now i want to remind you guys that at revive stronger we are online coaches we use evidence-based practice along with our experience to help our clients lose fat gain muscle and take the stage, whatever their goals might dictate, improve their physiques and their confidence and their knowledge. And this is what we pride ourselves in, is excellent communication. So if you are interested in a very communicative and very individualized online coaching experience, definitely check out our coaching. It'll be linked in the description below. But without further ado, let's get into a chat with Alex. One thing first, uh, some of the audio quality on Alex's side was a little bit spotty in parts, but the discussion was really good and clear for the most part, but I do want to just flag that up just so you go into this with some expectations that there might be some spotty bits. Overall, I think the conversation flowed really well. So, let's get into the chat. Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have a guest who hasn't been on the show for a while, And I imagine a lot of people might have forgotten about this podcast episode because it was four years ago. Uh, But it's going to be a really interesting chat. And uh, this is Alex. I'm going to say Alex Turner. Your the the initial part to your last name is not the easiest thing to say, Alex. So I I, uh, might even let you say that part Uh, because yeah, I always struggle with um, more complex names because I'm just a terrible speaker, I think. Uh, But yes, he came on four years ago. It was episode 148. So that was the theoretical mechanism of muscle memory. The listeners will be very aware of kind of muscle memory. But I don't think it's really ever delved into, to a large extent, just generally. Um, I think a lot of people hear it and they just think, oh yeah, muscle memory is a thing. Whereas we're going to kind of question that a little bit potentially here. Uh, so we were covering um, some c- research that he was conducting into the effects of anabolic steroid use on muscle gene expression, epigenetic markers, and their influence on the enhancement of muscle memory. And that has now been completed and published. Uh, Alex now has his PhD. He is officially a doctor. I should have introduced you as Dr. Alex actually at the start. And so, yeah, we're here now. I know it's been uh, a bit tough for you because of all the things that happened over the past years, but uh, it's finally published, Alex. Thank you for being here.
1: Steve, it's a pleasure to return. Thank you for letting me come back on to talk about uh, my research project that I have uh, done in collaboration with a large number of people, and I'm the person here talking here today, but we was in close collaboration with researchers um, from the University of Rome, and also uh, yeah, Dr. Charles Research Institute in Melbourne, in Australia as well, and a number of other uh, researchers throughout the UK. Uh, the project that I was involved in that formed the base of my PhD was funded by the World Anti-Doping Agency, uh, and it was trying to investigate this research question of does human muscle exhibit a memory of anabolic steroid exposure? And also, what is the impact of anabolic steroid exposure in humans on gene expression in blood to potentially investigate that as a new type of drug test? And also in muscle to better understand uh, how the androgen receptor interacts with anabolic steroids and, and turns on genes associated with muscle growth in muscle. And for the, the, um, the novel aspect of this research is that um, there was only one previous study at the time of when we started this that had looked at muscle uh, myonuclei numbers. We'll talk about what they are in past anabolic steroids. But no no study had done anything longitudinally through time where you monitor the same people through time after a steroid cycle to investigate muscle memory. So that was what we were trying to do in the muscle memory aspect. And then the gene expression aspect was novel because we utilised a technology called RNA sequencing. Uh, that's been around since the mid-2000s. It's a type of technology of next generation sequencing. Um, and b- basically, it gives you the ability to look at the expression of all genes in the genome. Um, whereas previous technologies, you could ever look at a handful at a time. With, with microarrays, you could look at many, many more. But with RNA sequencing, in theory, you can look at the expression of, of all genes in the genome. And that technology and that Thoroughput, as they would say, or that power to look at that vast number of genes has never been investigated in human anabolic steroid exposed tissues. And so, for us to apply that technology to tissue samples, muscle, and blood collected from humans, that never been done before. So, that was a novel aspect in that regard. Uh, so, I know we're going to talk a little bit about the evidence for muscle memory and this idea of can muscle have a memory of anabolic steroid exposure, uh, myonuclei permanency, and then a little bit about the gene expression results as well. And uh, ultimately how the field has changed dramatically since 2017 uh when i first started um so i think maybe that's a good place for us to start steve to talk about what it was like in 2017 with muscle memory and then now what it's like
0: uh yeah absolutely because i i think i was just going to say i think uh most people listening myself included it's not something i've spent a huge amount of time investigating and so my kind of uh, general thought around muscle memory is yeah if i have some time off then i might regain that muscle in like half the time because i've got this muscle memory effect and so i don't need to be too concerned about like detraining so much i i don't know if that's an old thought to have now since 2017 like you said the
1: this landscape has changed so yeah i'm very interested here yeah so that was very well said so uh, when we're talking about muscle memory we're talking about a memory of muscle mass so this idea of that if you are uh, you've acquired muscle mass and then you're going to lose muscle mass and experience atrophy from injury or immobilization. If you then get the ability to go back to regrowing that muscle, you'll regrow it at a much faster rate than you were gained it in the first instance, and you can get back to where you were. And so there was a memory of what you previously had and your rate of regrowth is quicker than first instance. That's the concept of muscle memory, which is an observed phenomenon. We know that is the case. What is up for debate which was seemed to be a closed book in 2017, but it's now totally changed, is the molecular mechanism of what achieves that phenomena. And so muscle fibres by volume are the largest cells in the human body. And they are one of the few cell types in the human body that contain many nuclei. And the nucleus of the cell is a part of the cell that contains the DNA, and is responsible for protein synthesis in a rudimentary sense. And so A liver cell, a kidney cell, a brain cell, a skin cell, they all contain one nucleus per cellular body. Whereas a muscle fiber regarded as one cellular body contains hundreds of thousands, if not more nuclei, because they need to supply this huge volume. And each nucleus is regarded as being responsible for making RNA, which will eventually get converted or translated into protein for a fixed volume of cellular space around the nucleus. And so the idea is that when you stimulate your muscle through resistance training, you will cause a a chemical cascade where you're going to increase protein synthesis inside your muscle. And those nuclei are going to make more RNA and they make more protein. And if that outweighs protein breakdown, you'll experience muscle hypertrophy. But then there's this idea that there's a certain ceiling where each nucleus can only make a certain amount of RNA and protein. And so if the fiber is having a stimulus that's wanting to cause this adaptation to go beyond that size based on the demands placed upon it, then there's a theoretical limit as to how big the fiber can get with the fixed number of nuclei that it has currently pre-existing. And so that's where muscle hypertrophy then occurs via satellite cells, which are cells, they're called satellite cells because they're outside the muscle fiber, like orbiting, as you could say, in a rudimentary sense. And they can get activated and they will then themselves go through a cellular cascade where they will eventually donate their, they, they'll duplicate and one of them will remain as a satellite cell and the other one will do, donate its nucleus into the muscle fiber and it will become a myonuclei proper. And then you now have more myonuclei. the fiber can then can hypertrophy to a size beyond what it was previously. So that's like textbook how muscle hypertrophy occurs. And then... All of that's in the context of natural resistance training. And we know from testosterone administration studies in humans that that exact same process of an increase in protein synthesis, a blunting of protein breakdown, an activation of satellite cells and an increase in myonuclear numbers all happens from superphysiological dosages of testosterone, even in the absence of any resistance training whatsoever. And that happens through the a- testosterone and then also by bicollary anabolic steroids, binding to the androgen receptor, activating protein synthesis in the myonuclei, activating the satellite cells to then become myonuclei. And essentially, my study was published where this was in vivo, so this means in living animals uh, through time, the exact same animals through time, so they image their muscle fibers, and they force their muscle fibers into hypertrophy, and then they then subjected them to different methods of atrophy. So they did chemical atrophy. Uh, they cut the nervous supply to the muscle fibers to induce atrophy and uh, uh, other f- forms of atrophy. And essentially, the muscle fibers shrank down in size because, you know, if you've got no nervous supply to your muscle, you're, you're not contracting it. It's got no protein syn- synthesis stimulation going on. So the muscle fibers shrank, but the nuclei that were in those fibers remained. And so, even though the fibers shrank down inside, the nuclei remained. And then it, it was hypothesized that when the muscle fibers then undergo regrowth, because there's already pre existing nuclei and they've remained in there, once you turn them back on and start getting them to synthesize proteins again, the muscle fiber will regrow at a quicker rate because the myonuclei are already in there. You don't have to go through this whole slow process of satellite cell integration. And in the context of steroids, you now then have this idea that, and it was shown in a mice study, that you give mice anabolic steroids, their muscle fibers increase in size, the number of nuclei increase in size, you remove the anabolic steroids, their muscle fibers will actually shrink down to the exact same size as controls, and then the nuclei are still significantly elevated. uh, Even if the amount of time that has passed is equivalent to 10% of the mice's lifespan, And then when you re-expose those mice to a training stimulus, which in that context of that study was actually surgical hypertrophy. So that means they're chopping one muscle off in the mice's leg, so it's forced to walk around on another muscle 20 hours a day, seven days a week. And in that context of hypertrophy, the rate of muscle growth in the mice that were previously exposed to anabolic steroids was much, much uh, quicker. And on top of that, at the end of that exposure, their muscle fibres were still 20% larger, even though they hadn't been exposed to steroids for more than 10% of their lifespan. And so that leads on to this idea that, well, my nuclei, they get, get accumulated in humans from testosterone. We know that from the administration studies. In mice, they get accumulated from testosterone and they're permanent, and they then cause an enhanced rate of regrowth and a high level of hypertrophy that was achieved. So then the question is, well, if a human is caught taking anabolic steroids, have a four-year ban, return to sport, but end up potentially still having an advantage from their previous anabolic steroid exposure. Uh, And it was regarded that myonuclide permanency was the mechanism that could result in this enhanced uh, performance advantage. And so since then... A lot of the minor studies came out with single laboratory groups spearheaded by Christian Gunderson, so since then, uh, uh, other people have tested these hypotheses. Uh, and one of the first studies that showed some contradictory evidence to minor nuclear was published out of University of uh, Kentucky and um, Duncan et al, 2019, it, uh, Um, basically showed that if you train mice on a weighted running wheel, so each week you're progressively overloading the wheel and they're adding more and more weight and they're running on the wheel, they will hypertrophy, their number of myonuclei will uh, statistically increase, but then when you take away that training stimulus, they actually uh, lose their myonuclei and it goes back down to baseline. And so in this context of a regular resistance training stimulus, in the model, uh, mining car were not permanent, and then the Gunderson group then decided to do a human study to investigate this, because all, all of this research at the moment we're talking about is is in mice, and uh, and a researcher called Kevin Murak reanalyzes some of their data Piss Pisslander is the is the original study, and then Kevin Murak does a secondary analysis of this, and basically they trained nineteen individuals but only seven of them actually accumulate myonuclei from the training program they're subjected to. And six of those, after they stop the training program and they go into a detraining period, at the end of that detraining period, they've actually dropped their myonuclei numbers back down to baseline. And so even in the context of that human study, uh, they've lost uh, myonuclei. And so they don't seem to be permanent after that single resistance training stimulus about study exposure that they're subjected to. Uh, And then there's also another study in old adults who undergo a periodized program and a similar thing happens where they have um, uh, a significant increase in myonuclei after the 24 weeks of training and then after they go into a detraining period and they have a one-year follow-up, their nuclei have gone all the way back down to baseline again. And so, because now you have this contradictory evidence, where both in mice and in humans you've got uh, studies where training programs have occurred and myonuclei have been statistically accumulated and then reduced back down to baseline, but you still have this like in real time imaging of live muscle fibers in mice that show myonuclei permanent. You have for and against evidence, contradictory evidence. And so in 2020, Timothy Snyder publishes a really good review paper on this topic and basically says there is now no consensus on myonuclei permanency. Um, muscle memory is an observed phenomena, but maybe it's not 100% solely due to myonuclei permanency. Uh, and so what is the molecular mechanism that's causing the observed phenomena? And a longitudinal human study comes out uh Lead author is Robert Seaborne, out of Adam Sharple's laboratory, and it's Robert Seaborne's PhD thesis. And longitudinal studies, we'll discuss later on, are very, very good um, studies because they control much better for uh, ex- exogenous variables. And essentially, in these individuals, they train them and then they remove the training and then they expose them to training again but instead they look at epigenetic markers in the muscle and specifically they're looking at uh, methylation tags. And so the simplified way to to, to look at this is that after the resistance training program, there are regions of their DNA which are becoming more open for gene expression inside the muscle. And those genes are associated with the adaptations of of muscle hypertrophy. And then when you are detraining, those genes are not fully closing, they're staying partially open. And then when you go back to training, their ability to reopen is is better. And so that would then be regarded as an epigenetic memory. So you're not changing the letters of your DNA, the A, T, C and G's, but you're changing the way it's packaged via methylation markers that is occurring from your training stimulus. And that patterning of methylation markers is then being remembered and facilitating uh, a retraining stimulus adaptation. Um, You could, in theory, have an epigenetic memory from anabolic steroid exposure because anabolic steroids bind to the androgen receptor, which directly binds to DNA in myonuclei in satellite cells and turns on genes associated with protein synthesis and muscle growth. And so that is going to involve uh, alterations in the way the DNA is packaged. Although it's not been fully investigated in humans, it would be very strongly likely to involve changes in the way methylation markers are, including other epigenetic markers like histone proteins, etc. And so there could be this idea that if usage is sustained for a prolonged period of time, that you end up with changing the way your DNA is packaged inside muscle cells, and, uh, it, and maybe there's a memory of that from anabolic steroid exposure. And then a study comes out that has looked at very heavy anabolic steroid users in the past who self-declared that they took quite substantial dosages a number of years ago and stopped. And it turns out that the proteins that are inside their muscle are actually different to natural resistance trained individuals when you just sample a cohort of them and compare them. Now, obviously that is a cross sectional study. So that means you're just recruiting past anabolic steroid users and looking at their muscle and current resistance trained naturals, and then comparing the two and you found a difference and they believe the difference to be because of the massive, the high steroid exposure in previous times. But obviously you can't rule out the fact that these proteins, which are all involved in muscle metabolism and would be ideal to have some impact on potentially on performance that maybe that, those differences actually could have been caused because of uh, differences in training regimens, training intensities, training styles, and um, may or may not be because of the steroids, although that is an observed result of the study that, uh, that, that that's what they found. And that same research group has also found that nuclei numbers in the trapezius muscle are significantly elevated in past anabolic steroid users compared to resistance-trained naturals. Um, but not in those same individuals in the vastus lateralis, so your outer quad and your quadriceps muscles. So then again, the same thing is, well, maybe the past anabolic steroid users trained their trapezius muscles harder, heavier, more intense. Maybe that's why that finding is there and may, may or may not be related to the anabolic steroid exposure. However, we do know um, that even in resistance-trained naturals, that the antigen receptor is expressed at a higher level in the trapezius muscle than it is in the same individual's quadricep muscle and then when you take anabolic steroids that discrepancy maintains itself but the amount of androgen receptor expression just goes up so the trapezius muscle then expresses even more androgen receptors and the vastus lateralis more but there is still a difference where there's still more androgen receptors being present in trapezius muscle compared to the vastus lateralis, which anecdotally is then why people always say people's traps and delts start popping when they go on gear. Um, and so, when our study started in 2017, we had that back body of literature with the trapezius muscle going on. And so our study was going to look at myonuclei numbers in the trapezius muscle, and we were going to replicate this idea of looking at past anabolic steroid users and seeing are their trapezius myonuclei still significantly higher than resistance trained naturals. And for the first time, attempt to monitor the same men through time after an anabolic steroid cycle to see how much, not only muscle, total body muscle mass do they lose, but how much of their muscle fibers shrink in their trapezius And what happens to my nuclei number? And I mean, we initially aimed to try to recruit 20 anabolic steroid users and monitor them through time. We got 19, but we then only managed to monitor five of them through time. And uh, four of them had a roughly similar time frame of anabolic steroid exposure and revisiting. And so those are the ones that we've uh, looked at. So four of these five participants stopped taking anabolic steroids less than two weeks before their first visit. And then they had between 19 and 28 weeks later, they returned back to us where they self-declared they were not taking any more anabolic steroids. They had done them post-cycle therapies, um, but they were not on TRT or injecting anything that would be binding to the antigen receptor. They last self-declared that they were using on average 505 plus or minus 236 milligrams of anabolic steroids for on an average around eight weeks and essentially those uh, individuals had a decrement of 3.9 to 4.7 kilograms of fat-free mass as measured with a bioimpedance scale uh, i don't know how much muscle they gained on the cycle we only measured them less than two weeks after cessation and then coming back 19 to 28 weeks later but their fat-free mass had reduced by about four kilograms uh, which is interesting to note um but as far as i know there's very limited data on that in in general. Uh, And that's going to change in the future because a study is being conducted at the moment, uh, spearheaded out of the Netherlands by an endocrinologist called Diedrich Smit and some of his other colleagues. And Diedrich managed to recruit 100 men taking anabolic steroids in uh, the Harlem study. And they've managed to sample them before the cycle has started, the last week of the cycle, three months after the cycle, and then one year later. And in that study, on average, they had 88.8 kilos of body weight uh, before the cycle started. At the end of the cycle, albeit they're all taking different anabolic sterile cycles of different different dosages, their body weight increased by about five kilos to 93.7 Three months later, it dropped down to 90.3 on average. And then a year later, it had gone back to 89.6, where they originally had all started at 88.8. But that still with the range of values of the one-year follow-up was still statistically higher than the 88.8 average. But we are talking about body weight here, not body composition, so fat, muscle or water. Uh, But Diedrich now is replicating this study and he will have the ability to look at body composition. So there will be a much larger data set than just the four individuals that we had in our study as to how much mass of people can lose measured with our impedance and actually looking at body composition, which I think will be a very interesting data to note. Um, and so in terms of my nuclei of our returning participants, we out of the five that we had, we uh, three of them, we managed to biopsy on both occasions. Uh, and two of them, they had they had stopped their cycle within two weeks of first visit and then they returned sort of that 20-ish weeks later one of them he stopped his cycle like more than 30 weeks before his first visit so he's not as good as a data point um but it's for example returning participant two who stopped his his cycle uh, less than two weeks before, his fibers decreased from 7,854 micrometers squared to 5,677, and his myonuclei values were actually comparatively the same. So that is, in theory, the signature of muscle memory because your fibers have shrank, but your myonuclei have stayed the same. They haven't subsequently reduced. Um, a similar pattern was observed for the guy who stopped taking anabolic steroids 30 weeks before his first visit, and then came back again for a similar sampling. He also had a reduction, although a much smaller reduction in muscle fiber size of only a thousand micrometers squares, but his myonuclei numbers were comparable, um, but obviously that's a different time scale, so they can't conclude too much from that and then for the other participant who did stop his usage less than two weeks before first visit and then came back roughly 20 weeks later uh, he actually experienced increases in both myonuclei and muscle fiber cross-sectional area so even though he's come off anabolic steroids he stopped taking steroids within two weeks he's then come off for 20 weeks and then come back for sampling he's actually at least on paper with his muscle fiber size has gone up and has his myonuclei. But his total body fat-free mass had gone down. So uh, that's the nature of doing some of these studies. That's not what you'd expect to see, but it seems to be his trapezius muscle has experienced some muscle growth during that time period. Um, or There's also a possibility that you're not looking the exact same muscle fibers as you were before. You're inserting the needle in the same area to collect them. And so there could be also be sampling error reasons as to why you end up getting some of that noise. And so that also could be an influence um, Uh, And so, it is a bit of a shame because of COVID that we only managed to get five returning participants, three of which did on both occasions, but uh, it became totally impossible for us to have people visit the laboratory. Um, And so, I personally think that the longitudinal sampling of people through time, although this is is the first time it's been done, uh, uh, is the best way to answer this research question of what happens in terms of people's muscle fibre size and their myonuclei number. Um, because you have the original study I told you about where trapezius muscle nuclei was statistically much, much higher in a group of past anabolic steroid users than current resistance trained naturals. Uh, you don't know if they're training regimens, they're training lifestyle intensity, etc., cetera, is a reason for that difference. But if you monitor the same person through time, you can control for that. And you can control for the fact that they're broadly speaking, probably going to be, yes, their training is going to change, their motivation is going to change, all that kind of stuff, but it's way more controlled. They're looking at totally different people uh, uh, as a cohort observational study. Um, We did replicate that study design. And so we did recruit past anabolic steroid users. And so when we look at the six past anabolic steroid users that we recruited, and compared them to 15 resistance-trained naturals. There was no statistical difference in the myonuclei numbers between the past users and the resistance-trained naturals. And uh, the past users had self-declared to us that they previously used steroids for a median of 12 weeks and had stopped taking steroids about, on average, three and a half years ago. So their steroid cycle of a median of 12 weeks is relatively low. Um, and they stopped four years ago. So they are not having significantly higher levels of myonuclei than a cohort of resistance trained naturals. And the previous study, the one before us, Anders Ericsson's research, their usage was substantial. It was over many, many years uh, and much, much higher self declared dosages. And so potentially you can already start to see that maybe. At least in that study, it could have been vast, heavy dosage that's caused this higher myonuclei numbers. In our study, they've got much lower levels of dosage. Maybe that's why they're not then getting uh, still statistically elevated myonuclei numbers. Um, and then as of only a couple of weeks ago, another cross-sectional study where they've recruited past anabolic steroid users and compared them to resistance-trained naturals has only just come out. University of Southern Denmark, with the lead author being Rasmussen and Nielsen. And they recruit seven past anabolic steroid users and ten controls, and they find that there is a statistically higher density of myonuclei in the past anabolic steroid users. And they found that the users that have self-declared high levels of dosage have higher myonuclei density, and like there's basically like a linear relationship going on there, where you've got more myonuclei density if your self-declared previous exposure is much much higher. Um, they are uh, saying that they stopped taking anabolic steroids on average four years ago. Um, and the takeaway conclusion is longer lifetime AA anabolic steroid exposure was associated with uh, essentially in, more myonuclear density in the previous users. Um, so you've got three studies now that have looked at past cohorts of past anabolic steroid users. And broadly speaking, my takeaway conclusions from these is that there potentially is a relationship where more heavy uh, dosage over a longer period of time, uh, those individuals seem to have, even if they've stopped a number of years beforehand, elevated myonuclide numbers. But then you have my study where they've taken only a steroid cycle of a median of 12 weeks, four years ago, and their numbers are not statistically elevated. Uh, which is interesting to note. And to sprinkle on some more interesting aspects onto this is this uh, mice study that came out uh, that was published by, uh, I want to get the author correct. It's the same group in Kentucky. Kevin Murak is is involved in that paper. Uh, And essentially what, what, what this study has done is you can now genetically modify mice Uh, where you insert a gene into the satellite cells of the mice. Well, you insert it into into the mice so that it only gets turned on inside satellite cells when you give the mice a specific drug. And the gene that they've inserted is a diphtheria toxin gene, and so diphtheria is a pathogen. And so when this gene gets turned on, it causes cell death. So you give the mice a drug and it will turn this gene on only inside satellite cells and it will cause a cell death inside the satellite cells. So these mice are born normally, they mature normally uh, through uh, as juvenile mice all the way into adult mice and they are totally normal. You then give them this drug and it selectively destroys all of the satellite cell in their muscle. And then you then give them testosterone and you see what happens. And it turns out that their muscle fibers Hypertrophy to the exact same size as normal mice that can hypertrophy their muscle fibers testosterone by accumulating my nuclei. So my nuclei accumulation is not mandatory to achieve comparable levels of muscle hypertrophy at the fiber level in mice. And so if that is the case in humans, then that means you could have humans who are taking anabolic steroids are experiencing muscle fiber hypertrophy and increases, but they're not actually accumulating any myonuclei. And so potentially maybe there is this relationship where you have to have sustained dose and sustained exposure to actually achieve myonuclei accumulation from the steroids uh, and then for them to even then potentially then linger. And so that that also puts a sprinkling the works but obviously i'm extrapolating here from my study and we don't know but that data i think is quite important to note because we know from the testosterone administration studies that even like 300 and above milligrams is causing my nuclei to significantly increase in number but then also you've got now my study that's showing that you can achieve comparable levels of growth at the muscle fiber level without any myonuclear accumulation going on in the first instance. So myonuclear permanency is then even then not a factor to be discussing because they might not be getting accumulated in the first place. Which is why you really need to have a longitudinal study with a large number of participants to really investigate and integrate this question. Um you know, if the Harlem study had managed to do muscle biopsies, I've spoken to the researchers, it was something they couldn't have done because they were sampling people before directly after three months and a year later, it would have been the most exquisite data set to investigate that. But doing muscle biopsy research and the molecular biology stuff was not the focus of what they were doing. They were more interested about the harm impacts and the implications on health. And that study is exquisitely done and is very interesting data to note because they find that even after a single steroid cycle, there is left ventricular hypertrophy. So they're the the, the chamber involved in pumping um, blood around your body and your heart has in, increased in size after just a single anabolic steroid cycle which is regarded as a deleterious for health marker but then it actually goes back to baseline after the people fully come off anabolic steroids um, they also find that even after a single steroid cycle um, about three quarters of the men are having sperm counts that would be below regarded as being fertile and um, those a lot of those men are then not actually recovering that after a year, albeit they're not doing certain things necessarily to counteract that, but that was still ends up finding. And they've also found that things like negative alterations in better profile, blood pressure, lipid parameters, kidney markers are all going in the wrong direction with people on steroid cycle, which we know. But then they are all going. back baseline when these individuals are fully removing them from their system. Uh, so it's very interesting data in a real cohort of actual general, you know, recreational users, as you could be saying. Uh, and their body composition data when it comes out, I think will be incredibly interesting to note to be able to see how much muscle are people gaining and losing at, versus also the side effects that they're experiencing. Uh, th- that would be very interesting to see. Um, so I mean that basically, you know, gives you a summary of our study, what we found in terms of myoclonic permanency, muscle mass reductions. Uh, the two other studies on past anabolic steroid users and what they found about nuclear permanency, the literature base about our nuclear permanent or any at all anymore. Um, and so I'm going to see if you've got any questions on that. Otherwise, I can touch a little bit about our gene expression findings, uh, uh, and then the floor is yours if you want to ask me anything else so
0: yeah it's um very interesting i guess my thoughts are or my assumptions from what you've said though it it still seems muscle memory is a thing it just might not be the myonuclei that is necessarily the thing that's involved with that there might be something else especially because with the rats there it didn't seem to be important for them to hypertrophy to have like that baseline there because that they weren't available in the same way as what they would have been if they hadn't gone through what they'd gone through so i don't know what that means practically i don't know if you have any thoughts about that what that might mean practically and then i guess also the the length and duration that people are taking anabolics for and having the four-year ban in place and it kind of feels like that needs to be a little bit more individualized to how long the people have been kind of using and that also makes me think about the sport that i'm in in terms of like drug-free bodybuilding they often have like 10 years drug-free or eight years drug-free or seven years and again it feels like that needs to be individualized maybe because some people have done like i don't know a week like they just took one thing or again some people maybe have done years of using
1: things yeah that's a really that's for me is the interesting point because i mean broad brush strokes if we're well, we'd, we'd, there's no consensus if myelin are permanent from normal resistance training outright. So, and it, and then if you've then got three studies that are looking at past users, and sort of the working hypothesis at the moment from this is that people who are self-declaring heavy heavy usage seem to have higher myelin density years later, and who seem to have much lower myelin density. And then you have a blanket ban for anyone who's taken anabolic steroids at any point in their past. It's like they may not have even accumulated myonuclei in the first instance from that or had substantial muscle growth from that. And so, you know, their muscle fibers might actually be comparable years later to an identical twin who never took steroids, uh, you know, for them. And so, I mean, if you want to make it as safe, quote unquote, as, as, as fair and as safe as possible, then yes, you would have the blanket ban. Um, but I do think the whole ethics of lifelong bans is quite an interesting thing because you, you don't get banned outright from a first doping offence. Uh, World Anti-Doping Agency rules. It used to be two years originally when that uh, when that was when they were first founded as an organisation and was extended to four. And then when this kind of my study research started coming out, particularly with the mice, there was this question about, well, for steroids, should it be permanent and lifelong? But uh, when you speak to the lawyers who are in anti-doping and involved in this kind of stuff, it's very unlikely something like that would ever happen. Like we, we live in a society where people are given second chances. And so they you've got that ethical conundrum that should you, people be given a second chance? And then also this other ethical problem where they may or may not have consciously taken the steroids that are found in their body. And so this idea of finding a contaminant in their urine, uh, maybe even proving it was a contaminant or not being able to prove it was a contaminant, then being the result of them then being never be able to participate in that sport again for life and not be able to coach anybody in that sport again for life. Because that's why an anti-doping ban by wider rules constituents. You can't affiliate to anybody that is competing actively anymore. You take away their entire livelihood their entire um you know social status gets destroyed and they are like blacklisted uh you know that's also then a difficult thing especially depending on the case of how or when the steroid was found in their body and under what circumstances so yeah uh if that's a very very interesting point to note, um i mean uh, the fairest way is yes is is to, uh, is, to is to you know this uh, have got this issue of self declaration as well in these natural bodybuilding federations where people are saying oh well 6 years ago I or 4 years ago where well, I wasn't drug tested but I did a anavar only cycle for 4 weeks versus someone who's potentially taken you know grams of steroids for years on end and then trying to get back to it so and then you, you've got self-declaration issues about people lying and then on top of that you've also then got issues about people using underground steroids where they don't actually know what they're taking is real dose at the level they believe it is uh, and so that's also then a big confounder and also that is a massive confounder for these observational studies as well um in the study where we're monitoring men longitudinally through time, they're self-declaring to me what anabolic steroids they're taking and at what dose, and the same for these cohorts of past anabolic steroid users. They're saying, I stopped on four years ago, and I took this steroid cycle for six months prior to that. I mean, memory recall issues are natural, and at that point, going to be difficult. And then you factor on top of that that they haven't got the steroids around anymore, so you can't test them, and on top of that, they, we, if they're self declaring they're using underground made stuff, you've then got no idea as to is it actually genuine. So, for in the Harlem study, they tried to correct for this a little bit because they do actually do some anabolic steroid testing, and uh, it's quite interesting because they find that essentially there is a, a large amount of. It, naturally in the underground market steroids that are self declaring to be something that they're not so for example here in the harlem study they look at 272 anabolic steroid samples from 46 different brands supplied by the first 55 enrolled subjects of 100 and 49% of the st- of the samples contained a higher number of anabolic steroids and only 13% of samples solely contained the declared anabolic steroid on the label. So there you go. Wow. People.
0: Six percent
1: of the sample. Yeah, and it's six percent of the samples, no steroids were found whatsoever. <laughs> so in four so 47% of the samples, they detected the anabolic steroid that was listed on the label. Um but in 8 percent of samples, it was solely that anabolic steroid that was found inside the vial or the tablet. So they contained other ones as well or different ones uh yeah other ones as well um so that's a massive confounder uh, because if someone's in these past anabolic steroid users albeit some people's dosages are varying tenfold which is pretty normal when you go into the enhanced world where some people could be saying i'm taking two to three hundred milligrams and then other people are taking two to three thousand milligrams and so There going to be a difference there, like the volume of liquid you're injecting, the number of pills you're taking is going to be different. And so the broad brush strokes, if someone's on a mega cycle versus a baby cycle, yeah, okay, there's going to be a bit of a difference, but in some people where they're taking four to 600 milligrams versus two to three, and then you sprinkling this idea, they could be having fake gear. The person that's taking four to six could could be taking two to three, even less. The person's taking two to three could be taking four to six, you know? The, it, the bigger the discrepancy and the difference, the more likely it is to be real. Like someone taking two to three grams is probably more likely to be in the two to three gram mark than someone who's taking two to three hundred milligrams based on the volume of liquid they're yeah, having to inject to achieve those numbers and number or pills they're taking. Uh, and so that's why I think what the Harlem study did with the longitudinal through time and looking at their steroid is really useful. And our thesis is going to investigate this question. They need to do this longer standard, longitudinal study through time where they monitor the same people measure their muscle mass and muscle fiber parameters of my nuclei before and after, and at the same time, because it it, take their anabolic steroids from them and test them and actually get a good idea of how much they are actually really taking, instead of just going off a self-declaration of someone saying, I'm on 400 milligrams of steroids when, who knows, they could be on nothing or 100 milligrams or 200 milligrams. Um, And, you know, that is the exposure, that's the stimulus that we're most interested in looking at. And if you can't quantify it, because mm. ethically, you can't give people steroids. Well, it's happened in the past with studies, but the, the really famous testosterone administration studies, they only looked at it right at the very end of the cycle to see the impact. And so the the easier ethically and logistical ways is to observation, monitor people through time. And the best way to then control for this issue of training regimens being different, training intensities being different, and all this kind of stuff is to have that longitudinal study design. And then as well, longitudinally check their steroids as well through time, then you're controlling it as best as you possibly can, as ethically as you possibly can. Um, and so that's what I think the future of the, of the field of research will go into. Yeah. Do you not
2: see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with a the plan? Then. get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better. If you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change. Sign up today and let's revive stronger.
0: Out of interest Alex, I don't know if you know this. Do people who generally take them do they get theirs tested like semi-regularly or something or do people just trust what they're getting
1: uh it it's a mixture it's a mixture it's total mixture you'll have people who are incredibly there are services in the united kingdom send your subsidies off and have it tested by uh liquid chromatography gas chromatography methodologies that will be able to tell you it's purity um and it's down to the user's choice if they want to pay out their own pocket to do that underground labs will also publish test results. And if they do it with an independent third party laboratory doing that test result, then arguably, you could believe that result. But obviously, they are in theory, it's an illicit business telling you their stuff is pure. So mm-hmm. do you ever really know because the law in the United Kingdom is they're a class C drugs. So buying and selling is illegal, but possession is not criminalized. And um, from the survey data that you've seen, that I've seen, it's that uh, most people are not, are not going out of their way to test it. Um, but then again, if people are getting their blood work done and they think they're taking X number of milligrams of testosterone a week and then it's not translating on the blood test, then that's also a very rough marker that people will yeah. use. Uh, similar with if they're taking hormones. Um But uh, as to how common it is that people use it, it depends on people's budgets, trust of their, their how they're getting it. Um, And some people, they bypass all of that because for safety reasons and harm reduction purposes, they don't want to risk injecting stuff made in the underground market. They will go and acquire them legally abroad and bring them back with them in the United Kingdom on their person. And in theory, that is legal. Um, uh, In theory, you have to self-declare it in customs. I'm not sure how many people are really doing that, Mm -hmm. Uh, but that that would be the current state of the law. Uh, because there have been instances, it's published in the literature. There's instances known on social media where people are getting abscesses and other bacterial contaminated oils and causing them, uh, to potentially even lose a limb or to have parts you know, serious bacterial abscesses that having to have surgical to remedy them.
0: Yeah, that's that's a a scary Um, thought.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a scary thought. It's a scary thought. Yeah. And this is something that we were talking about before was that uh, there's a research group spearheaded out of Manchester Met University, Jim McVee. he was one of the, the last author of this paper it came out last year in 2022, where they published a academic estimate of how many people are taking anabolic steroids in the United Kingdom. And they've interviewed anabolic steroid users, they've interviewed um, academics and come up, they've used this thing called a Delphi method, and they've come up with what their best estimate is. And the central estimate is essentially around 450,000 people, um, which is about, uh, between the ages of 15 and 64, are taking anabolic steroids in the UK right now, or have taken them in the most near future, which is about 2% of that age demographic, which is about, for that age demographic, um, one in 48 people was what it would translate to. And so there is a, a part of research in the UK that is leading on this idea of do we need to consider having better harm reduction services to better provide services for this demographic of people who could be causing themselves serious harm? Um, if they're not if they don't know what they're doing, if they're taking underground made substances, um, and not taking any breaks, taking sustained high amounts of steroids for very prolonged periods of times, not monitoring any health markers whatsoever, any doctor supervision, and uh, unknowingly to themselves, potentially causing long-term organ damage. Uh, Like you can damage yourself to the point where you will cause permanent kidney failure and have to go on dialysis. You can cause excessive plaque buildup and increase your risk of chronic heart coronary disease. Uh, All of the signs of those diseases can be seen along the way, if someone is to do their due diligence, and then to be sensible and and to take fully time off and to stop. And there is this idea that maybe there needs to be a harm reduction service and a health monitoring service, because it could be a burden on our on the NHS in the future. If you end up with a large number of people who end up having to walk into dialysis wards, because of kidney damage, that could have been mitigated uh, if the person was told the damage they were doing to their body before it was too late. Um, And so, for example, the harm study is done out of a harm reduction clinic in the Netherlands where people are going there and having their health parameters and markers investigated. I know then people will then say, well, it could encourage usage because people can then try to adopt a safer usage model, and they don't try to, uh, you know, they just keep taking what they can and getting away with it and keeping their health markers in range. But I I think these substances, because they can damage health, uh, people are always going to be taking them, and there's always going to be a desire and a motivation. And so the best instance, at least in the eyes of these harm reduction practitioners, Uh, possibly in the future for public health is at least people are made aware of the current state of their health and what the impacts are currently happening. So they uh, have the ability to stop before they do too much damage and it's then too late. Um, So it's going to be interesting to see how that evolves because it's like we were discussing before, Steve, that recreational steroid usage uh, is, I I, I would say, and this is what the literature would say, is that it's all-time high. Mm. So um It's never been as prevalent in society as it is now, and so if that trend is to maintain itself and/or and, most likely, based on what most academics think, continue, then potential for a ticking time bomb uh, yeah. uh, of not only male infertility but long-term kidney and heart damage if people are not taking breaks, fully stopping, and not even knowing things happening to them because they haven't had any insights whatsoever
0: yeah i think it's it's also what reflecting on one in 48 men in the uk are taking and that's just men as a whole when i think about the subsect of like the people who are taking it bodybuilders and then when you look at how many male bodybuilders or people who are bodybuilding or like just going to the gym for the sake of building muscle how many of those are there so then that's going to be like one in i don't know it's just going to reduce that number massively like in your gym It's not one in 48 anymore because now you've got the subsect that are actually going to be taking it. So now it's one in 20, one in 10. I don't know. It's kind of crazy to think it could be that. It's funny you say
1: that because the original, yeah, yeah. A lot of the original studies, they were criticized because they were going to your quote unquote bodybuilding gym where naturally you're self selecting for a high proportion of people that are taking anabolic steroids. Then if you were to survey people at Glastonbury Music Festival or something like that, where it's not a hub, but there are still a few you know uh <laughs> very muscular people walking around um and that was that was self-criticization of a lot of the early studies but this is this is using what they call the delphi method it does its best to try to say that the broad general population demographic is roughly roughly two percent yeah. yeah but obviously in certain places it's going to be much higher um
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think you're completely right in terms of like the harm reduction because as we're speaking off air, much more, there's way more awareness of it. People are much more open about it, which I think has its benefits, but also potential downsides, especially because I'm not sure, at least from what I see, how many people are talking about the true costs to health uh, versus kind of potentially a glorification
1: of, hey, look how jacked I am, (laughs) something like this. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's very well said, yeah. Uh, I mean, there are, there's instances of, you know, IFBB pros that end up going on dialysis or very top-end level powerlifters that end up going on dialysis. Uh, And you might find about it then. But if someone is, you know, approaching into late-stage kidney, and well, yeah, kidney failure and markers, and then they just sort of end up dropping off the scene and not really taking part anymore, and you don't really hear about them, maybe you never end up hearing about the services that always happened. Uh, And that's in people that have got notoriety in the industry. What about people that are not necessarily in the public eye? Um, And so we were saying beforehand, you rewind the clock back in the day into the nineties and early two thousands, no one was discussing steroids, even IFBB Olympians. Now and then you have the Rich Piano, Boston Lloyd era, where suddenly on, it comes totally out the bag, where it's made very open that people that are that big are taking anabolic steroids, and then it's now at the point where it's discussed very, very openly. But then is there's a trade-off of how much does that then encourage more usage amongst demographics in the past that were never taking it? Has that contributed to the, the background prevalence level going up? People's interest in in it going up. And then naturally, if then just more people are taking it, there's going to be a spectrum of recklessness and abuse. And then there's the number of people that are then abusing goes up because there's just more people in general taking it.
0: Yeah.
1: Um and so it's a very, very difficult. And then you put on the legality aspect as well about how of of you know how people are breaking laws to do this. It then becomes a very difficult topic to discuss. None of us want to see people getting hurt. That's that's the truth, and getting the health permanently damaged. That any no nobody wants that, and that's why, if we're seeing numbers of people going up, and there is always going to be a spectrum of usage and a subset of people that are going to abuse, then there needs to be. A, you know better education and, and knowledge put forward so that people understand the health implications and impact and and all that kind of stuff and on top yeah. of that maybe the ability for them to be able to ha- have access to doctors who can show them before it's too late the damage that they're doing yeah
0: yeah for sure alex i don't know if you've still got time i know you, we were going to go on to gene expression those parts of your study
1: so this, this is an open access research article was published in May of 2023, in BMC Medical Genomics. And essentially, we looked at uh, out of the 55 participants that we recruited. So we had seven sedentary individuals, well, non-resistance trained individuals. Uh, and then we had uh, our resistance trained cohort, and our current anabolic steroid user cohort. And so it turns out, in blood, there were actually no differences in gene expression between any of the groups. uh, And so it doesn't seem to have been causing any notable differences there, uh, which is interesting because it was theorized that androgen receptor binding might end up causing changes in gene expression in whole blood. But the population of cells that you're predominantly looking at there are white blood cells. And so it might just be the cell of that biology is just not uh at the time at the time where we're taking the blood relative to last anabolic steroid exposure causing a substantial notable long-lasting effect of gene expression, which is interesting because of EPO, which is that my supervisor his base research, there is a distinct change in gene expression in whole blood when people are taking EPO and when they're coming off EPO, even a number of weeks after the fact. And so that was potential a new way to detect EPO doping in sport. And the idea is that could also be a, a new way for us to detect anabolic steroid doping in sport. Uh, in muscle though, so we've got some more interesting results. So in muscle, we've got 51 participants, we've got five individuals who are not resistance training, 17 naturals of so resistance train, 15 guys who have self declared they've taken anabolic steroids and stopped within two weeks of the Muscle Bartsy. And then we've then got 11 guys they were self declaring they stopped taking anabolic steroids more than 10 weeks uh, since the time of the muscle biopsy. That was how we decided to divide them. And that's because most anabolic steroids that we're looking at after 10 weeks, the esters are pretty much cleared. Uh, if they're taking oral steroids, they're definitely cleared. Whereas if you're taking steroids within two weeks of the muscle biopsy, the esters are still going to be of the injectables giving you super levels of of receptor binding um, and the orals would have dropped off, but some people were taking steroids a day off and all the week of the biopsy. So they're still, uh, in, in those instances, particularly the day of the orals, could have been some androgen receptor binding. Um, and the three, we managed to have biopsy three participants through time, and those three stopped taking steroids two weeks beforehand, and then they then came back 20 weeks later. And then uh, we took a muscle biopsy when they not had any more anabolic cells in their system. Uh, and so what was interesting was that it was actually only one gene that was differentially expressed in the guys that came back after their cycle through time, those three individuals. And that gene is actually associated with muscle atrophy. And it was actually upregulated. So these guys had stopped taking anabolic steroids within two weeks, we took their muscle, looked at gene expression, they came back 20 weeks later, and all three of them this one gene as associated with muscle loss was actually statistically elevated that in that later time period. How much has that contributed to the fat-free mass muscle losses that we observed? I mean we don't know, but that's an interesting finding to say that maybe potentially we spot in steroids, there's actually maybe uh, some genes that are associated with muscle loss that are actually going up. Maybe because you're no longer having that super physiological anesthetic receptor binding going on. Obviously, what well, I'm hypothesizing here, and you'd have to do in depth cell culture studies to really integrate and investigate one is this finding actually happening in tissue cell cultures and mice, and two is, is that actually contributing to uh, the observed muscle losses that, that we found. Um, interestingly, when we're looking at the guys who stopped taking anabolic steroids. Uh, a long, long time ago, no genes seemed to be significantly differentially expressed. So they weren't having lingering changes in gene expression in the past users compared to any other groups. Uh, obviously, that previous study I told you about did find that their protein differences were different. But those are the guys, if you remember, they're taking very, very heavy dosages. And all of the genes associated with those proteins, they were not significantly differentially expressed in the past users in our study. So for example, if we compare the guys who were taking anabolic steroids and stopped within two weeks compared to the resistance trained naturals, there were 105 genes that were different between those two groups, and uh, 84 of those genes were uniquely differentially expressed. So that means 84 of those genes were differentially expressed in the current anabolic steroid users, and uh, not expressed in any of the other groups and figure two in our venn diagram shows you a full five-way comparison so you can see which of the genes were uniquely differentially expressed and although this is a very rough way to do this if you were to look at the genes that are differentially expressed between the guys who are taking anabolic steroids and the guys that are natural and then the guys that are natural and the guys that do not resistance train, uh, and basically you overlap those, and you see which ones are unique. When you do that group comparison, there actually seems to be nine genes that are uniquely differentially expressed in the guys taking anabolic steroids. So potentially that's that acute level of doping, that acute level of anabolic steroid exposure within two weeks is potentially causing genes to be expressed that are not being expressed from normal resistance training when you compare normal resistance training people to sedentary people and the anabolic steroid users to the, to the sedentary people. So that's quite an interesting thing to note. Uh, some of those genes are associated with a performance enhancement benefit. Some of them are actually associated with a performance negative and actually associated with atrophy. So there is noise in the data set. So mm. you don't always, especially, and then again, We're doing an observational study and we're overlapping. It could be that we're finding these results because the training regimens of the current anabolic steroid users who stop within two weeks is different to those resistance trained natties. And so that could be the reason we're seeing this. Some of the genes were involved in differences of uh, muscle metabolism, mitochondrial uh, adaptations, and these kinds of things. And we know that training can impact those exact same genes. So it may not be the steroids that are causing them, it could be training. but then again, as I said, this is the nature of the beast. We've got we're doing observational research because of the eth- ethical considerations, and uh, this is um, the best way we can try to control for that fact by doing these differences and overlaps with, uh, uh, and taking into account st- uh, when you do the statistics, which ones actually have a, a um, statistically you can. Uh, a difference, even when you you, you, you factor in multiple testing, because we're looking at about 16,000 genes here. That's the power of this technology, we're looking at all of the genes available to well, there's 20,000 roughly, but you filter away the lowly expressed ones, and then you're left with a data set with around that kind of number. And so you also have to mathematically take into account because you're testing so many genes, some of them just by chance are going to be different, even though there may be no biological ones reason for that difference, because you're testing right. so many different things. And so the statistics does take that into account and we were relatively strict with that. And then on top of that, the gene had to be at least a bare minimum 20 percent more expressed for and take into account the multiplicity testing issue. Um, And that that was then how the numbers fell out. Uh, And you can read the full methods on that. Um, And I'm also a big advocate of open science. So the raw gene tables are available. Uh, the raw R code is available if you want to be a super nerd and run run some numbers yourself and draw some Venn diagrams. Uh, there's links to that in the in the paper. Um, uh, and uh, there's also some interesting uh, graphical representations where you try to put in together the most differentially expressed genes. So the top 30 genes that are most differentially expressed between Uh, the current anabolic steroid users who stop within two weeks and the other groups. And you then run a clustering algorithm to see if you can fully distinguish the groups. So if you can say that when you look at all of these genes together, actually they tend to, as a group, cluster together. And so maybe it's a pattern of exposure signature. Maybe you could use as a doping signature. Uh, And there seems to be some pretty good clustering but not clustering. So there's actually pretty much like all of the current guys who stopped taking steroids within two weeks are clustering differently to the guys who stopped many, many weeks ago, the natties and the sedentary individuals. But then there's still a couple of natties in there <laughs> that are actually clustering with the current anabolic steroid users' gene expression profiles. I don't think it's because they're taking steroids. I think it's just noise in an observational studies data set. Um, but we've got those graphical representations as well. So that's always quite interesting because there's animal administration studies where they've looked at using these clustering algorithms and they can actually perfectly cluster out animals that have been exposed to steroids and those that have not with the idea that you could test their meat and look at gene expression to try and determine if their farmers are giving them steroids in the European Union when that's actually illegal to do as a growth promoter. Uh, And so in those, that's why we did the clustering algorithms and i reference those papers in the article. In in those instances in animals where they're giving them Tremolone, there is very, very clear cut clustering and it's causing like a whole pattern of genes to be very differentially expressed that an algorithm can then fully computationally distinguish. And us using very similar computational methods has not obtained full distinguishment, um, but relatively close, but then again, they did natural administration study, gave, gave them fixed dosages, whereas we did. So, uh, that pretty much is the summary of, of, uh, the research that uh, I've done for my thesis. Um, the only other stuff I did was, uh, I did during the time of the pandemic was shut was look at, uh, catching people doping at the Olympics where their urine gets frozen. And then years later, after the fact, they go back with enhanced technologies and go and look at the frozen urine samples and try to catch them. And it actually turns out, uh, I'll send you this paper, Steve, if you, I'll send you all these papers, you can link them up that if you look at all of the medals that have ever been reallocated at the Olympic Games in the in the majority of cases, so over 70% of cases, that doping has been identified after the fact when the sample has been reanalyzed with an improved technology and they've actually then end up found a doping substance and the majority of the cases is anabolic steroid uh, whereas there are only about 30 percent of olympic medals that have ever been reallocated for doping that doping actually been identified in real time at the time of the summer olympics in, in you know july august kind of time frame which i would find quite an interesting finding because if, if that's what you're finding at the olympics that only started storing samples from 2004 onwards, that long term sample storage is not mandatory and obligatory for continental championships, European championships, world championships of any sport, some sports do it, but they it on their own accord, they're not obliged to. And so uh, you can then think about maybe what levels of doping people have got away with in the past, where they were doping at a world championships in 2004, 2005, six and seven, their samples were never stored in the long term. Then they go and compete at the Olympics in 2008, get stored for the long term, and then they get caught in 2016. When well, it's like, well, actually, they could have well been doping in the years beforehand, but the samples weren't stored and the technology wasn't good enough to detect it. Yeah. So uh, always, science shines. I think a light onto um, how it's always this cat and mouse game, you know, of the doping versus uh, the 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 testers. Um, They'll go on in perpetuity, you know, yeah. going forever.
0: Uh, this is just off the cuff now Alex. uh but I swear I heard that there was some rumor of a like untested olympics happening I don't know if you've heard uh, this Yes I have s-
1: you se- have you not seen this have you Yeah have that's you what I'm saying it? yeah I saw oh, I saw river. something it's Okay river. it's real yeah, yeah.
0: This is actually yeah, happening well, but
1: they're planning I believe they're planning on doing it next year uh I believe it's a very wealthy uh entrepreneur that's hosting it and uh yes they are hosting Not all of the traditional Olympic sports, but a handful of the traditional Olympic sports. So track and field, weightlifting, and they are very openly saying there'll be no drug testing whatsoever. Uh, And they're sort of promoting at the moment. I saw the guy on Piers Morgan uh, talking about it in America. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they do have a tint where they say that the International Olympic Committee has had a history of financial corruption it uh, doesn't pay athletes to be Olympians, and um, they make a large amount of revenue. This is what their arguments are. They make a large amount of advertisement, revenue, and money that the international committee gets to keep. But the actual athletes doing the performances, this is why people watch the competition and not really gaining access to. And so they want to try to improve that in their mind. And then along with that, they say the testing system is broken. There's loads of doping. people it. So why not just that people do and have doctor supervision? Uh, one, if you take part in that, you're going to get blacklisted from any tested sport, right? So I'm not sure what athletes are going to necessarily take part in that, or ruin their Olympic dreams if they do. And then secondly, if they are using doctor supervision for taking steroids, we even know from the Olympics that if the people that are winning medals are doping they're taking the whatever they can get away with in the smallest dose to try to skip a drug test and not taking heavy heavy you know really risky things and so I don't know if you'd be more inclined to take heavy risky drugs if you had a doctor helping you versus I want to take a little something just to have that one percent extra performance advantage over someone and beat a drug test and so they say it'll be better for athletes' health, but then I think maybe there's more inclination for athletes to end up taking more than if they were actually tested and trying to get away with it, and where they're probably, because they're tested, having to take less. So uh, you can, I've forgotten what it's called. Um, I'm just blanking on the spot on the name, but if you Google it, yeah, you'll find You'll, you'll see it And I think it's believed to sort of take place next year. So it'll be wow. very interesting to see what happens, how much publicity it gets, and what people think about it. Yeah. Um, Obviously, it's quite controversial. Um, Yeah, you added... So we'll see if it actually even takes place.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think you added some really good nuance there in terms of like better for health, which I think a lot of people would assume it is, but you're right in that like you can't be completely reckless with your drug use if you're trying to pass tests. Like you have to manage that somehow and that probably means lower doses, doing it for less time potentially, all of those sort of aspects. So it's very interesting... And I'm interested also in all of this because as a natural bodybuilder and competing in natural federations, I'm like we're always trying to think like the thing that makes us different from the enhanced side is that it's natural. How do we make sure it's natural is through good drug testing or like obviously polygraphs are widely used, and oh, I think they're more of a deterrent than ever- anything. And it's interesting to hear all of the things you're mentioning. I'm just like, I think it's probably a financial issue i think on our behalf as in we're nowhere near the size of say the olympics or something like this where we can afford that amount of drug testing
1: yeah and it's also it's a type of drug testing that you do as well for like growth hormone for example is only detectable via a blood test so there's no blood testing going on then well you can be taking growth hormone and no one will know about it i know that's been a problem with the olympics i'm sure that's that's a very expensive test to do and then i mean also like uh, I, I published a research article about the doping practices of weightlifters. And I looked at a 10-year data set and all the steroids, types of steroids weightlifters have been caught taking. Uh, and then, that then inspired, because a lot of weightlifters got caught in this retesting of samples because the main technology that improved was the ability to detect oral steroids like Anavar, Winstral, and Turinaval. And um, most of those people that are getting caught in weightlifting, even in instances where entire podiums are getting caught, they're only getting caught for one oral steroid, like just Turinavol or just Winstroll. Whereas then if weightlifting is now going to be in the untested Olympics, like, uh, like they're probably going to be taking injectables as well. And based on the timeline of excretion of the injectables uh, relative to the oral steroids, if they're detecting oral steroids in their urine at the Olympics and only detecting one oral steroid, if they were on injectables, they would have detected that as well, but they didn't. So I'd feel like doctors, at, at what point does the doctor say, Oh, no, you should only be taking one oral steroid in this untested Olympics. Uh, but the athletes like, No, I want to take injectables as well. I want to take, you know, and growth hormone and, and this and, and do a diuretic for the water cut. Oh, God knows what else, you know, it's like, <laughs> they're, they're probably going to be taking more polypharmacy, then they're not and then who's making the decision deciding on that the athlete or the doctor it's an ethical minefield.
0: yeah i can totally see that alex thank you so much for your time Uh, i realize we've been quite a while now and uh, thank you for coming back on and explaining all your research to the listeners and what that might mean for implications for people and just uh, i guess mostly it's to chew on it at the moment. I don't think there are any like big practical implications right now that we have. Uh, is there anything else you're working on in future? Is there anywhere people can keep up with your work?
1: Uh, I mean, the best would be to just go on. Anything I do is, is going to end up being on there. You'll see all my full publications. I'll link that to you. I'll also send you a breakdown of, of, of a lot of the papers I've discussed if people want to go and have a look at, look at that. Uh, that that will be uh, the best the best place
0: okay um, perfect
1: yeah and then Steve I have to I have to thank you for letting me return uh to be able to discuss my work you very kindly uh let me come to your London seminar which I uh you know the, the last one before covid uh, you let me talk about my work to help with recruitment I'm very grateful for that because you, you did help me get more participants and you know I've also dedicated my PhD to the participants uh, because of uh without them we can't do these kinds of studies and the help you provided me uh obviously very grateful for that uh and for you let me return to talk about this work so uh yeah i could talk about this stuff to no end and uh you know i'm very interested by it and uh it's great to be able to discuss it with people like yourself who are not uh, interested particularly obviously with your natural bodybuilding the implications of that and um uh yeah i just thank you a lot steve and. um thanks thanks for your
0: time i appreciate that a lot and i'm glad to hear that that helped and as always guys thank you for listening and we'll catch you soon take care
2: losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass sounds too good to be true doesn't it It isn't, though. It's reality, and we know how to do it, and we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight-week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You'll receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the mini-cut so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The mini-cut movement is open 24-7. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.